Welcome to Disaster Peace Theater. I'm Stephanie Vela Anderson. It's time to go for a walk at night in the neighborhood. Someone has their windows and blinders open. Oh, I should probably go take a peek. <laughs> they look boring. I'm living in suburban type neighborhood it's not like the best you know what I mean I can't complain I'm in a good spot right now a lot of people aren't let's begin so I will say this in every single podcast over the years actually over throughout the course of my life people have told me that my voice is relaxing hypnotic soothing and helps them fall asleep if you fall asleep during this podcast that's fine. I've actually included some ambient noises. This is just kind of like my experiment with ASMR. In this episode, I am going to read parts of a chapter of the book I completed. By the way, I want to thank everybody who purchased my book. I had worked on it for two years and I was in a rush to just get this done. I didn't have a, a bunch of like major plans for it and I didn't have a copy editor and one of the reasons why I decided not to go with a copy editor is because I wanted wanted the book to accurately reflect someone who grew up within a culture that was extremely misogynistic did not value education and had little resources uh, for someone like myself the title of this chapter is when you're out and it's about an experience I had with a person that I went to high school with. I also reflect upon my intuitive abilities in this chapter. I also used this experience and this person to reflect my sentiments and, and my grief and, and angst against white men. And I feel that this experience that I had, I, I still feel like I haven't done it much justice. It was profound to me in a multitude of ways. I've altered this chapter a little bit. The audio version that I'm coming out with will be different from the book. Each chapter begins with a poem and a statement. I'm going to read the poem first. I grabbed the dirt and meant it for the first time. Do you have any idea how that feels? How many more sips of poison could I take? Congratulations, you were the first to become prolific. Don't try to adjust your crown just yet. You are going to change your tone this doesn't require fat checks. Shed it all one by one. This door is sealed shut. Spread those thinners and melt every sense that took you there. On the wrong side of the fence again, I see. How many lies have you sold until you started buying them for yourself? Too bad you may never get to 
Taste the smell you can't shake out of your lungs. Who wants it more than who? The paint is in your hands. I could see the panic in this boy's face. It was the same panic I saw when I looked in the mirror. I just didn't make sense. The world around me didn't make sense. And I could see that this boy saw those same things. I sat next to him. He had a broken reed in his hand. He was crying as if he lost his tongue and couldn't sing anymore. That boy's name is Cage. We never really interacted until after high school and life outside of Big Spring. He would occasionally DM me here and there. The messages were often awkward and clunky with muddled tones. Maybe once or twice when I read them, I would ask myself, why doesn't he just say it? But it didn't make sense to think something like that. It was all in my head. The year I saw Cage's wedding photos in my feed, I became insanely jealous and I didn't understand why. I was on my patio smoking a cigarette and mulling over these images of him and his wife on my phone. Was I not good enough for him? I thought to myself. Then I'd shake my head. Why in the ever-loving fuck am I thinking this? We weren't friends in high school. We weren't anything to each other. Cage and I matched on a dating app during the pandemic. I resisted using one for about a month. Dating apps are completely gross. I am permanently banned from Tinder, apparently charging men whenever they request nudes is a crime or something. These apps are useful, but it's not the app that's the problem. It's heterosexual men. Cage paid $2 to super swipe me. This was a big deal to him. I almost ignored it. He followed up with a message on Facebook and I let that notification sit there for a few minutes. He was still freshly divorced and I wasn't ready to face whatever it was that lay dormant for 20 years or so. I changed my mind. I gave him my number and we talk. I thought this would be an easy hello, goodbye. But he spills his feelings. He tells me he made a mistake. He says that I should have asked you out. I don't know why I didn't. I wouldn't be in this mess right now if I had asked you out. I'm touched. And then I become annoyed later on in the conversation. He calls me his West Texas girl and he interrupts me when I'm talking about a project that I'm working on. And this is where I usually walk the fuck away, but I didn't. I felt compelled to see what the hell was there. What was this pull that I was feeling from him? Cage was able to recall his memories of me instantaneously. Cage remembers the band hall, that I was the only one that checked on him when the instructor broke his reed. He remembers dancing with me at a bar in Big Spring around the time when my marriage was falling apart. 
I didn't recall my memories of him as vividly. It took me some time, but I remembered how he made me feel when I danced with him at the bar. And there was a part of me that was pissed. I could feel his pull, but I was also annoyed that he wouldn't act upon it. It made me feel like I was the only one who felt that way. As Cage and I began to text and talk, there were so many synchronicities that were happening. I'd think about him and his name would be spoken on the television. His last name and numbers that were associated with him would show up on a client's account at work. It was overwhelming and beautiful at the same time. These were the little things that I asked from the universe to give me when I met the person. So right away, I'm thinking, where do I sign up and how do I keep him? There was some resistance still on Cage's part. He would say, yes, it's there. But then he would text me something like, I'm not ready to date someone like you. You'd see straight through my bullshit. This made me angry because I felt that he had called out to me. And when I decided to be present for him, he was shuffling me to the side and blame it on whatever excuse he had at the time. I cried about this a lot and I blamed myself. I told myself I had deluded myself again. I asked what was wrong with me. How do I keep getting this wrong? This is mutual and cosmic, right? I decided to walk away. I sent him a rambling text about how you shouldn't open doors or windows and that I'm not to be toyed with. I block his number, but I didn't block it on my Mac. So his messages came through. And so I'm like, fine, I'll talk to him. He was going through a lot after all, and I knew what that was like. We met at a bar. He drank an old fashioned and I drank a scotch. When I talked about my advocacy work, he would interject. His feedback contained passive phrases and he would use his vocabulary to dismantle my empathy and visions. It began to feel like gaslighting. He would build me up and then tear me down. And his feedback wasn't constructive criticism. It was heavy with mansplaining, telling me what I needed to do differently, that I should aim higher and do better for myself. He suggested that I read Joseph Campbell. I gagged. Joseph Campbell was a privileged white man who wrote about the sacred myths of other cultures as if he knew them better than those cultures did. Campbell was not a philosopher. He was a manipulative, unoriginal, misogynistic, racist piece of shit. Cage got a kick out of my face when I cringed at the subject of Campbell. He enjoyed the torture in my expressions when he talked down to me. He said I was cute when I was angry. This was so belittling. When Cage talked about how my work with Big Spring was a waste of time, I became somewhat locked in thought as I tried to explain why I felt it was important. I became locked in the same way that I would whenever a bully tried to challenge me. I knew no matter what I said, it would not be valued by him and his attempts to get me to wrap my mind around his opinion were nearly flawless. 
The night got worse. One of Cage's old co-workers recognized him and came up to our table, and they caught up for about 15 minutes. They took a selfie together, and he held her from behind, grabbed her in a very manhandle type of way. This, of course, made me feel uncomfortable. It also made me feel like my time with him was nothing. I wanted to spend time alone with him, and when I had mentioned that to him before, about possibly taking a trip, he said he had already reserved time with a friend. At this point, I started feeling disposable to him. Once she's gone, I firmly let him know how all of that made me feel. And he tells me, she's just a sister to me, and I promise this, and I'm just touchy-feely with everyone. So I guess he puts his hands on people whenever he wants. I thought about leaving, and as he watched me struggle with that decision in my chair, he grinned and made verbal note of it. I still wanted what was inside of him, and I was going through all the motions that I had been taught to go through. All women involved in a toxic heterosexual relationship have been given the following mantra to chant when confronting this type of behavior from their hetero male counterparts. He's just a man, and this is how they are. Cage apologizes, and he changes the subject. He inquires about my rosary. At this point, he was trying to put me back at ease by pretending he gave a shit. As I tell him about the story about my beads and how they're sacred to me, he sits next to me, and he hugs me. Then he says, can I touch them? The beads. And I tell him no. And I'm holding on to myself as he's hugging me. I was holding on to myself as if I would after I had a disagreement with my ex-husband or previous boyfriend. Then I smell him. And I hug him back. And then we kiss. And while we are kissing, he touches my rosary beads. I touch them, he says. And I just roll my eyes. Boys will be boys, am I right? For a few precious moments, as we sat together in this oversized chair, things were nice. Possibilities were discussed, and he'd said something like, I could be with the love of my life right now. And I told him, don't say that. Cage already professed something to me, and then he took it back. And I did not want to go through that again. We walked out of the bar and to the parking lot, and we kissed again near my car. And then out of nowhere, he pushes me up against it. It was abrupt and jarring. It carried me back to every fear that I had that every white, straight man had given me. It bolted through my body, and I became frightened. He pulls back, and he tells me to take off my rosary. He tells me he wants to rip these rosary beads off me. And I told him that I wasn't going to take off my rosary and he wasn't going to rip my beads off. Did he know or understand or even care how much they meant to me? I wear those rosary beads because they are my source of protection. And they've always been with me when I experience significant things. I wore those beads that night because I felt and believed that Cage was significant. The history of the rosary is unclear, 
their significance is just as blended as my blood. During the 16th century, female confraternities were formed around the rosary in Italy and France. This was because women were excluded from society and certain religious practices. These beads are one of the few pieces of my Mexican heritage I can grasp onto. Our Lady of Guadalupe was a brown-skinned Mary that appeared to Juan Diego in the winter of 1531 near present-day Mexico City. She spoke Nahuatl to Diego, his native language, and asked him to build her a castilla, a little house on a hill. The local bishops didn't want to believe Diego until he had proof. Diego returned with a tima, opened it up, and flowers tumbled out of it. Flowers could not be found that time of year in the cold winter. After this jarring push, I let Cage drag me by the hand to the side of this church that was across the street from the bar. I was still in this mist of confusion coming down from the emotions that he had brought out of me. I had asked myself, why am I walking with him? And why did I still want his face and hands all over my body? It had been some years that I allowed myself to be vulnerable with anyone. And I thought that I had conquered my vulnerabilities. And I thought that I understood my senses well enough to listen to them and to not let anyone like Cage do what he was doing to me. I don't know exactly what it was I was trying to hold on to as I allowed him to touch me. I laid there on the ground and my fingers dug into the earth by the tree. He was just being passionate, I was telling myself. I didn't have to tell him what to do. He knew how to touch me and that was convenient. He then says, I would love to tie you up and do all these things to you. And then I tell him that I've been assaulted and I can't do that. There was no emotional response. No, I'm sorry that happened to you. The times that I've looked back on this intimacy with Cage, it, it felt as though I was dancing with my Nordic ancestors, whose blood and culture has kept my brown blood under dark waters for centuries. Whatever was in Cage, it felt like it wanted me to eliminate what was left of the brown inside of me. He continued his attempts to dominate me. He pulled my hair and tilted my head back. I grabbed the hair on the back of his head and tilted his head back. I had to let him know that I wanted equality and that I was going to give back exactly what he gave to me. The day after, we texted normal shit. He sends me a picture of the glasses he's trying on, and he looked great. I love his face. I love his eyes. They calm me down. I spent all day thinking about him. And then when the evening came, I, I thought back to all the things that had happened. I thought about how he manhandled another woman in front of me, and how he found pleasure in my disdain. I thought about how he was bouncing back and forth, and how he blamed his in and out on his problems. Cage was behaving like he was carrying a cross for the very first time that he just couldn't wait to show off. He acted as if he never really had any real problems in his life up until now. This whole situation seemed like fate was pulling us together, and for what reason, I did not know. But it was all painful. 
and annoying, I started to wonder if I had just become a fantasy for him, if I had always been a fantasy for him. I put together this 26 minute long video trying to explain how he was making me feel that I struggled with wanting to commit to him for the long haul, but yet it didn't feel that that was reciprocated back. It felt so natural to have jumped into his life, to be a part of everything that he was. I wanted to give him the things that nobody gave me when I was going through similar things. For some reason, he wasn't able to accept or ready to receive what I was willing to offer him instantaneously. Instead, all I got was aggression. Cage willed me psychically, spiritually, and subconsciously to him. And I think what kills me the most about all of this is that I'm unsure if his deviant behavior had laid dormant inside of him all along, or if it was awoken by a moment or several moments in his life, or maybe his behavior was chosen because it was easier to do. Men, for the most part, are talented in twisting our emotions and our hearts into thinking we must abide by the sexist social world that caters to their weaknesses. These men, when they were boys, were raised to believe this damaging lie. And time and time again, I've watched them inflict their power upon anyone they please for their personal gain, convenience, or pleasure. And they do it openly, without fear or recourse, because they've never been held accountable. In that night I spent with Cage, I saw the negative impacts of a misogynistic culture, like West Texas, had on people like us, me, a female, and a constant struggle to maintain my self-worth and boundaries, appeasing to whatever a white man has to say because it was the only religion I was given. And now, if anyone questions my emotional intelligence, I feel that I must defend myself, and I have to remind myself that my emotions are valid, and that it's okay to overthink, because that's simply my heart and my brain helping me look out for myself. Then there's this shy male artist, like Cage, who was rumored to be gay in a derogatory context that kept mostly to himself in the corner with a sketch pad. And then he grew up to be an asshole. And his focus is on temporary surface things, like having money and something to show for it. Somewhere in his misguided instincts to lean on me, he didn't fully comprehend that it would have been little effort to have given me the respect and confirmation that I had deserved. I have to visualize Cage in a different way now. I have to think about him still as that child, that young boy that I was drawn to in that moment when he was crying. I have to visualize myself driving that young boy to the desert mountains. And that little boy is knocked out, so I take him to the spring and I collect all the plants that I can find and I crush them into a pace and I rub it all over his head. And I chant and I walk around him and I ask the universe and the guides to cleanse him underneath the full moon. Then I watch him until I fall asleep and the fire dies and the morning comes and he's there in his adult form. 
He wakes up and he smiles. And the monsters are gone. And he can be happy again. And I can be happy with him. This would be the ideal way I would like to end this book. A visual of what I'd like Cage and I to be. Or think about what we could be. Sometimes we think our love is strong enough to penetrate through the darkness, but I've tried with others. There's an intoxication I simply cannot pull away some of these men from. I've tried. It's almost as if they have lost the strength to hold themselves accountable, to think about how their actions may have altered or damaged the people around them. A part of me felt that when I told Cage that I couldn't do this anymore, I also felt that I was speaking to every white man who had emotionally and psychologically held my heart prisoner. To every white man that I've dealt with that didn't want to let go or perhaps not understand their privilege and just went on with their lives carelessly with all the freedoms in the world. I also had to think about what attracted me to Cage that it was environmentally and socially engineered into my brain. But I also couldn't deny that within me lied an attraction to a centuries-old battle that neither one of us created but still carry on. My experience with him and his desire to destroy my rosary made me think about my great Abuela Rios, who appeared at my crib and placed the blessings of our ancestors on my heart. It made me think about the same land that both Cage and I dwelled on. It was the same land that my abuela picked cotton with her tiny child hands. Those hands were cut and they bled, but that blood was not wasted. I carry it with me everywhere I go. My mother gave birth to me outside the walls of white medicine, and she kept her pain for me. The same pain that a white man arrogantly stolen and gave himself credit for. My time with Cage was what I needed to rearm myself, to remind me of who I was and how far I had come. The work that I had been doing was meant to help kids and adolescents like he and I that live there. I had a hard time wrapping my head around the, the lack of value that he saw in what I was doing. When he pushed me up against the car is when my warning signals really went off, which by the way, he, he didn't bruise me. He didn't physically hurt me. And I really think it was a moment of passion for him because it felt like I was with somebody who had never had sex in their life. Trying to understand where he was coming from in that moment on his end. Here I was, this object that he had kept in his mind for so long. And all of a sudden I was there. And I think that may have contributed to the feeling 
I got of being disposable. Like he could dispose of me at any moment. Because his mantra really is, it doesn't matter what you do in the end, it, it doesn't matter. I think that mantra applies to certain situations, right? But it carries a weight of disregard for other people. It separates somebody from accountability. It separates somebody from doing any real deep reflection about who they are, where they've been, what they've done. But that comes along with his privilege that I don't think he's fully aware of as a white man. I think there is a desire in there somewhere to understand it. You know, he did ask me to teach him to help him be a better man. And my reply to that was, I'm not your mother. I'm, I'm pretty sure I said that to him, but here we are. He knows I've written about him. This is your lesson, dude. <laughs> because of the similar patterns that he has shared with my past partners, I was able to take my experience with him and shape it into something symbolic to represent my overall angst. I, I found myself in the this, in this spot with him that I was willing to comply with what he wanted. And it was all based on those synchronicities that I talked about, the universal symbols that I receive. I, I received these symbols when friends have died. I, I pick up on these things before family members die. And, and this is the area that he had tapped into. So a lot of me was thinking that I needed to be obedient or go along with what he presented because of this subconscious space that he managed, managed to wiggle himself into inside of me. And he doesn't believe it, and that's fine. I don't really care, but this is my reality. This is how it's always worked for me. And it has driven me crazy because I didn't want to acknowledge it. And now I'm at a point where I'm finally acknowledging it. I want to go back and talk about the memory that I have of him in the, in the band hall, which stuck with me in a dream-like state for decades. That memory would appear in my dreams or in my waking hours as, as a vision. And I would get this vision and he would message me. And he had messaged me periodically throughout the years and he would give me updates here and there about what was going on in his life and it seemed like he was searching for somebody to, to talk to and I would respond to these messages and I would wait for more conversation but it, it never came so yeah every time this happened I would go back to the band hall and, and the vision kind of turned into me just running or rushing to this guy and embracing him I had no relationship or solid interactions 
with him in high school and the only one he remembers is the time that a friend of mine rallied us up to go shoe polish and silly string his car which is hilarious because there was no malice for me on my part I was just like oh this is just something stupid to do and sure my my friends asking me to to help her out so I'm, I'm gonna be that I'm gonna be that bitch right yes I'll, I'll go help you go fuck some shit up I thought he was attractive but again we weren't really in the same circles I don't even think we had any classes together in, in high school so there wasn't anything there to base my my feelings of jealousy towards his his marriage and that memory stayed with me for a long time as well that the feeling of, of of anger and frustration it just did not make sense to be so angry that he had married somebody else of course again like I mentioned because he had thrown so much energy my way right with fantasizing about me or kind of perhaps in his head looking towards me or at me as like a source of comfort or relief and my subconscious picking up on it it only happens to me with people that I'm related to or that that I'm close to it, it had me believing that we were definitely meant to be together and I was ready I was ready to embrace what he had I was ready to to take this on and I, I did ask him if we could just at least see each other exclusively like no more dating apps just just he and I so that we're not wasting any more time and he couldn't guarantee that to me I also saw somebody in the background and I saw him leaving me for someone else so there was some hesitance to actually pour myself into this person in his life and there was somebody in the background I'm pretty sure she was there and he hadn't saw it yet and if he did maybe he was keeping her in a file in the back of his head he argued that because of his position in his life right now that he couldn't give me everything or he couldn't work with me he, he just couldn't handle me which was very perplexing to me because when it comes to things like partnerships I'm, I'm pretty simple it's just based on exchange and compromise and, and understanding there were times I was short with him and I still am when he talks about his problems and the, and the reason being is, is because I've been through a lot and I've, I've seen people go through worse there is kind of sort of a bootstrap mentality that he carries his energy was was abrasive in that matter I, I of course gave him the same and he put himself down a lot and he would say he doesn't know what he's doing but he he does he couldn't have made it this far in his life and not have a clue of course the costume he was given the the ship the vessel he was born into has allowed him to walk easily through life whereas someone like me it hasn't been 
there wasn't any true empathy on his part in regards to to my journey I never saw it it wasn't quite clear but all of those things all of the, the experience and that I had with him and all, all of whatever is going on right now deep down inside I felt that it could be overcome there was this unrelentless hope that it was a hurdle that we would be able to get past but his refusal to believe and I want to state again that my belief in, in, the, in energy in telepathic instances is based on my own life experiences and knowing this is something natural it's definitely a human sense it's, it's definitely real it's also based on the fact that science the linear logical part of humanity is examining these things it's only fun to to mysticize right but within that mysticism within that creativity it only serves as a highlight and, and kind of a, a grounding for others there's definitely a source of energy that we're tapping into and that energy is projected outwards for myself this is just common it's not abstract it's just as real as the ground I'm standing on and the sun that's shining on my feet I looked at, at a picture of his daughter and I, I fell in love with her and I wanted to em embrace her just as much as I wanted to embrace him and I also saw there was some sacrifices that I would have had to have made had I gone down that path I was ready and, and willing to take him he also did mention that he didn't want to throw all of this on me which to me indicated that, that I, I think he was looking for somebody that he could throw a lot of this on because I don't think he knows how to handle it which he has handled it really well he did mention that he should have dated me in high school and if he had he wouldn't be in the mess that he's in today there's no way of turning back time of course there's only working with the here and now is that a lovely thought I mean sure but if I had carried any significant weight to him as much as I felt that he carried from to me whatever little piece of him that he had he would have fought for it and I didn't expect him to, to play this game of cat and mouse with me which to him I think in my emotional reactivity is what he probably perceived to be he, he probably thought I was trying to prompt that type of trope that type of scenario if you will I think he's had me objectified for so long and what I mean objectified not just sexually but looking at me as a, a figure of sorts I mean it's a compliment to tell me that I'm, I'm so much more than than what I am I take that and I appreciate it but I wanted to be that so much more to him and him only and I would have been happy with that for the rest of my life
I also feel like he's not completely himself that I feel like he's had to put on mask so many times throughout his life that he didn't know how to take his off for me or for anyone because it didn't necessarily have to be me it could have been anyone else that he may or may not have been able to to reach out to on that telepathic energy level there's only been one other person that has done that and it took me took me some years to wash him out which again was difficult and, and painful to do but this time around now that it's happened again I'm trying to reframe it I'm trying to learn how to handle this I because it, it very well may happen again in fact, I did receive a message from, from somebody who approached me in the same manner that he did. Only this person was not in my subconscious. He didn't manage to thrust himself in there. But And that, that's the thing that with, with this guy, Cage, like he, he just doesn't, he just doesn't see it. And it, it, it makes me sad a little bit that he, he doesn't see it because being able to throw your energy at someone and that person that you're throwing it at being the fact that they have picked up on it subconsciously with very few, almost no factors in reality in, in the waking hours to contribute to it. It means that he's more powerful than he gives himself credit for. Then again, there's also this this just sly factor about it where he's constantly saying, you're so beautiful and you're so intelligent and you're probably smarter than I am. Those kind of statements and, and the tone of them is almost like, I'm going to let you feel like you're in charge of the situation, even though I have my own intentions behind it. I still think he's a beautiful person. I still think he's much more than he gives himself credit for. And I want him to be happy. And I want him to find peace. I don't want to feel any angst or, or anger, which arose in my last interaction with him. I think that he probably had the impression when I reached out to him that I was looking to pair off with him, partner with him, and I, I wasn't. That he started talking about the partner he's currently dating and described her as being level-headed and preserved, <laughs> which the tone I read off of that was passive. It's almost like he was passively implying hey, I got someone that's not crazy like you. And I think my brain was working on overtime throughout all of this, which I think, again, back to the part where he shoved me up against the car, I think my brain was like, hello, dude, yo, Stephanie, dude, like, no, no, don't, don't do that. He may be just a simple man, a simple person as he describes himself, but again, He's not. He knows it. He's an artist. And of course, again, he hates the fact that I 
compared him to West Texas men. Well, he he was definitely wearing that coat. And he still does. Like, he used the term wedlock, which is an atrocious fucking term. Come on. He, def- he definitely has the intent of not being a backwards squidbilly. And in some ways, he's there and... In other ways, he's not. The The amusement that he found in my disgust with a figure like Joseph Campbell was exactly the same kind of amusement that I received from so many other white men when I throw out my visions and, and explanations that were based on my experiences. It's it's very dismissive and it's, it's very belittling and it, it makes you feel small. It made me feel small at me. I don't know how I can't speak for everybody else who's been in that situation and but if you if you have, you know what I'm talking about. Especially if you're a woman, identify as a woman or a person of color. It's like a sneer. It's like the smug demeanor that sends the message of you really don't know who you are or what you want and that's not how the thing and that and that's not how things work right? Because the way things have worked have always been for white men. And that's been dismantling before our very eyes. And, and now a lot of us have been forced to actually deal with it. I had been dismantling the privileges that I have benefited from for the past two years before the height of all of this this BML movement. And what makes my situation unique is living on the border because I experienced disadvantages and discrimination while simultaneously experiencing privileges. I know I am here today because my abuela worked and, and, my, and my ancestors worked the land. They worked in mines. They worked in in the fields. And I know I'm also here today because of my white last name and my skin. I think an appropriate mantra that he should adopt and he's he may or not be listening. He may or, he may or may not have gone this far. But I, I think that you should say and I'm talking to you. Do what that will, but don't bring any harm to anybody. Is that a Satanist quote? I'm, I'm not quite sure. Hopefully it's not like a, a Crowley term. That fu- motherfucker is horrible. He was evil. As a medium, as an intuitive, as a, as a spiritualist, I'm going to have to send out energy of healing towards him. I'm going to have to send out energy of strength. And I know that I'm ha- going to have to because I, I know this person has something very innately good and beautiful about him. So I will play the part of that witch in the desert and I will continue to do that towards him whenever he pops up back again because he still does so that there can be peace and perhaps an an opening of a spot inside himself where he can live his true self where all the problems that encompass him don't make him weak 
and tattered, but rather strong and efficient and benevolent. I will confess, though, as a creative person, I enjoy a little bit of the crazy, but I can't relish in it anymore. I can't be angry that my presence to him, the possibility of me being in his, being in his life, didn't give him enough hope. I have to celebrate the fact that he has met somebody else and that person gave him hope, the hope that he needed, whether that hope was for, for himself or his, his family. I simply have to just let it be what it is.